Devils fans, thanks for joining us and welcome into an all new episode of our Speak of the Devils podcast. Chris Westcott here filling in for Matt Lachlan. I'm joined, of course, by Amanda Stein, team reporter for the New Jersey Devils. Amanda, time to take a breather, I think it has been. <laughs> go, go, go. I'm not complaining because we've had a very long pandemic, off-season, season pause, no hockey, but now it's bang, bang, bang. And no, we have nice. now got to, it's, it's nice. nice. It's nice, but we haven't had much time to just sit down and chat about everything that's gone on. Yeah, it's crazy. So as everyone knows, I was up home in Montreal for seven months and then I was like racing to get back to New Jersey with my visa. Um by the time the draft came around, because I was like, I want to be here and hands-on and at Prudential Center. I arrived on, I guess, the Friday evening. Saturday was free agency. Sunday, or no, sorry. Saturday was the draft. I mean, you, you know the whole story. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everything came one day after the other. So this is nice to be able to record this podcast and sort of reflect on everything that's happened, particularly surrounding the draft. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was exciting. You know, we got to it. There was a lot of great stuff that happened. Obviously, the draft party for our fans with Investors Bank and then Geico sponsoring all of our draft coverage. We had a live preview show and we got to break that down with Catherine Bogart, who would join us later in the podcast. And it was a lot of fun to finally talk hockey again. <laughs> it was just really fun. And, you know, there's been a lot to talk about with the New Jersey Devils this offseason. A lot of it really positive, Amanda. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about the offseason and adding Lindy Ruff and Mark Recchi and um, more draft, like having three first round draft picks, that's huge. That's the first time in franchise history that's ever happened. And not only that, they're in the top 20, which is even better. Um, so there has been a lot of positivity. And I think that you and I both on Twitter and uh, have really um, seen that from our fan base who are really excited for what the future holds. And I think, you know, I'm thinking back to the draft day two, and I kind of wish like our fans could have seen what our office was like <laughs> on the second day, waiting <laughs> for the second round to complete. Because I think we were all going <laughs> a little bit crazy <laughs> and just sort of like, yeah, our minds are just very strange then. I think that second round felt like the seven months leading up to the draft. It really did. And maybe it's like amplified because hockey's back and you just want something tangible to hold on to. And you're just waiting and waiting and oh, waiting for the devils to come brutal. back up. It was. <laughs> you, know, I, you don't have a pick. You're just yeah, that was crazy. Uh, you know, no more waiting anymore, though. I mean, we've had free agency, we've had the draft, and and, and like we've already mentioned, I mean, the positivity surrounding the team is all about the future. And yeah. and Tom Fitzgerald has been working diligently to stock the prospect pool, as we saw last year with the trade deadline. And then, of course, with the three first-round picks this year and some of the other picks as well. And the, a lot of the positivity, Amanda, obviously we work for the team and we're on the Speak of the Devils podcast, but... A lot of this is coming from the outside. And one of the names that has been extremely positive about the New Jersey Devils this offseason has been Corey Promman with The Athletic, and I'm pleased to announce that he is our guest. He's going to be joining us in just a moment. Really excited to talk with him. He gave uh, the Devils a second overall franchise ranking in his uh, prospect rankings, uh, players under the age of 22 and under. And then he gave them an A- for their draft. I mean, this is the guy that seemingly believes in a lot of the young players coming up in the future, Amanda. 
It's funny because you say like players under 22 (laughs) and that like literally qualifies like a ton of players that have been playing on the roster for three years already. You know, you consider Nico, you consider Jesper, you consider Jack. I mean, so it really does speak to what's to come, you know, and what this team has been building towards. And I think you you mentioned, um, the trade deadline this past year, you're really starting to see the mark of Tom Fitzgerald, um, you know, calling his own shots and being challenged by his own team to make good decisions. And I mean, seeing Corey rank them like that, I know the organization was excited to see that. It meant a, you know, people really respect his opinion and I know it meant a lot to them. It's still going to be a while before we see the fruits of Tom Fitzgerald's labor, but I do really like the future of this organization. And I think as we get to know more about these young prospects, more Devils fans will as well. And with that, we now bring in our guest for the episode, Corey Pronman, the senior NHL prospects writer for The Athletic. Uh, Corey, thanks for joining us today on Speak of the Devils. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting you're one of those people that just knows these prospects in and out and you've spent a long time scouting these players, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of players. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how does someone like you uh, give us a little bit of insight into your career path and how you uh, wound up uh, having this role with the athletic? Um, yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of people in media, you kind of start off a, a smaller outlet for me. It was hockey perspective many, many years ago. Um, and then I moved to ESPN uh, where I did a similar role, um, for about four years before moving on to the athletic, kind of doing this in a much, and in every step, kind of expanded the scope at, at which I've kind of done this role. For for you, uh, what's your favorite aspect about prospect scouting or uh, writing these pieces? Uh, you know, is it like the draft grades? Is it breaking down the franchise rankings? You've got so many interesting pieces of work there out on the athletic. I'm wondering what's your favorite part of the role? Um, I would say uh, the actual kind of like post recap kind of stuff is not really the, the, the stuff that I think about the most of the, the, the large chunk of the year is kind of spent figuring these players out, um, whether it's through watching them, talking to people who know them, whether it's uh, their scouts around the league or people in various other leagues who have seen these guys come up uh, the ranks and just kind of doing your best to kind of put the puzzle together and, and kind of figure out where all these guys kind of fit and and what makes them good or not. Um, and, and that's what most of the year is kind of devoted to leading up to a couple of critical moments, uh, such as the NHL draft. But how did you specifically sort of land into this role where you're, you know, you're the guy to go to for all these prospects that none of us really know about until we read your work. Um, and I probably would say I'm not the only one who does this, but um, in terms of how I kind of, you know, it's, um, I did kind of, when I start um, think at least when I did start about 10 years ago, that this was an undercover area. I think 10 years later, I would no longer say this area is undercovered. Um, but when I started 10 years ago as a big baseball fan, I would look to, all the prospect coverage in uh, Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus, um, across various other mediums, and see a lot of people who were really kind of devoted to this kind of role where it's to kind of know prospects at all levels, the pre-draft and the post-draft level. And I did not really see a lot of equivalents in the hockey world, despite the fact there were some very uh, significant similarities in terms of how the minor league systems worked 
and the I think demand for information about both the pre and the post draft players, and that I, I kind of invested myself into trying to fill that niche. And whether I did it well or not is someone else's opinion, but that's kind of how I think I carved out my role in this field. Well, we definitely think you did a great job uh, getting here and we're really thankful to have you on because I know for a lot of us, you know, when um, the draft comes along and your team picks a name that, you know, is maybe not as familiar, uh, you can always count on you, Corey, to (laughs) have the info. So for me, I'm wondering, you know, before we start talking about the devil's prospects and all that, how many hockey games do you see a year? And on top of that, you know, when you have like a guy, let's say, playing in Ufa in Russia, I mean, what is your connection there into making sure that you have the right scouting uh, needs? Oh, I mean, I, I honestly can't answer that first question. I mean, I just, I mean, I just, no, <laughs> I mean, I just, any, right? No, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, just before, just, just earlier this morning, I must have watched, I don't know, three, four, five or something like that. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just, crazy. That, that, that's one. But I think the, the technology has evolved a lot in that regard to where, you know, I think not just me, but particularly teams um, are able to watch, you know, multiple games of a guy in an hour um, because they, you know, the technology that particularly teams have allowed them to like clip uh, the games of these guys into shifts and just, you know, for a guy like say Makamadula who's been playing about 15 minutes a night, they probably can watch, you know, his entire season so far in about an hour and a half. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the new kind of uh, wave of terms of how, how you scout players right now, um, particularly at the team level. So, so that's different in terms of a guy like McCombadoulin. Um, I have watched him a lot both live and on video. Uh, he's played in many high level international events over the last few years. Um, I saw him uh, two Novembers ago, the 17 challenge. I saw him two, uh, a spring ago, uh, two Aprils ago, that is. At the U18 Worlds is underage. I saw him at the Ivan Holinka Gretzky Live. I saw him at the February U18 Five Nations. Um, in th- this past February, I saw him this past December at the World Junior A Challenge. Uh, I've watched him a lot of his games with, at the MHL level, which can be found on YouTube. I've had his KHL games sent to me by, by, by team employees. Um, I saw him play on video at the, the Russia's uh, World Junior Camp in August. Uh, you know, I've seen this, you know, I've probably seen over a hundred games of this guy play in the last two years. So I have a pretty good idea of who he is. No, no kidding. I mean, it's crazy to think just like how many avenues there are for you to be able to see all these players. Um, you know, you said like, oh, I saw him two years ago. So in your brain, like, are you working two years in advance in, in, in a sense, like, how many drafts ahead of you are you kind of looking at players when you're scouting? Um, there, there, I would say typically two years is the typical, um, typically the farthest back I will go unless there are some guys that just jump off the radar so much at like such a super elite level that they're in that kind of playing range where you typically would only be looking one or two years back, but they're just playing so far up their age group. Um, a guy like Connor McDavid would be an example of that. It just kept playing like way ahead of his age for, uh, for a couple of years. And there's a couple other examples of that, but like, like Makama Doolin was playing, um, last spring, like I said, at the U18 rules is underage, which is typically the event you go to watch for the guys who are eligible in, in 2020, that's no, right. In 2019, that was that event, but he was just 
one of the better players in his age group. So he played up a year and he kind of forced his way to be recognized. Well, one of the reasons why we really wanted to get you on this Devils podcast was that it's been a pretty good summer of writing for you in terms of how uh, Devils fans should be excited about the future of this organization. I mean, the Devils have really committed to growing their prospect pipeline over the last several years. I mean, having a couple first overall picks definitely helps with that. But we saw the trade deadline last year also adding some young prospects as well. You ranked the Devils as the second best franchise in terms of young talent coming up the pipeline. Yeah. Would love to just dive into that and see why you did that. I know that fans can read that on The Athletic, but I'd love to, for you just to open up in terms of why are the Devils set up so well in terms of young talent? Yeah, I think there's you know there are two big reasons. Uh, the first one was, as you mentioned, the two first overall picks, Jack Hughes and, and Nico Heischer. Um, I would say neither of those two have probably hit what you kind of like hope, expect they will be, but those two in particular, Jack Hughes, if they become even kind of close to what I think they could potentially could be, those are kind of cornerstone building block kind of caliber players. Um, and the other reason would be the kind of the quality depth of the organization. Um, you can't really get You can get to a high ranking usually if you have like the really, really elite players. Um, but I wouldn't say, you know, you know, and, and Jack and Nico are, are, are close to that range, but having that plus the quality depth, I think really kind of distinguishes the Devils in terms of their young talent. I mean, they've had so many picks the last couple of years. Um, I, I forgot the, the exact number off the top of my head, but I think in 2019, once I had they had 12 picks that year. 11, I believe, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then nine this year traded one away, so eight, yeah. Including three first-round picks. Yeah. They you know, acquired Nolan Foot. They acquired Kevin Ball, as, as you mentioned. And that all adds up. Um, doesn't mean they're all going to play. Doesn't mean they're all going to be good players, um, but in, in the world of prospects, you need to be taking calculated bets. And if you get kind of, you know, 15, 16, 20 guys who look like legitimate prospects, you can get, you know, 10 of them to pan out. You know, that's all of a sudden, you know, that's half a roster right there of guys who can legitimately play. Um, and I think that's what you're kind of hoping for as well for guys like Jack and Heischer to, to really become you know, true top centers in the National Hockey League. Um, I, I'm not sure if I just look at everything they have, if this is enough to become a contender just quite yet. But I think post-2020 uh, draft, you can kind of start piecing these things together. You can kind of start seeing what a legitimate top two lines look like. You can see what a legitimate top four defense looks like. Maybe they need another, you know, you know, really high-end defenseman in, in that mix, arguably. But particularly the forwards, you can really see a foundation coming together there. You know, you know, with Jack, with with he sure with Holtz and and Mercer, um, Nolan Nolan Foot, um, to go with some of the guys they already have um, up there. I, I think there's a legitimate foundation there that they can at least you can see becoming part of a good team. Let me rewind a little bit. You kind of mentioned a few of those names in there, but in terms of the trades that they made in season last year, it seemed like the focus was getting complementary talents. You have a lot of skilled offensive defensemen, like a Ty Smith, of course, and you have Riley Walsh coming up as well. So you get Kevin Ball, this big, mean, bruising defender. And then you get guys like Nolan Foote and Yanni Kolkinen. Your thoughts on when you add young prospects to that system that could potentially fit in with the guys you already have near the top of your list, would you like what the Devils did in terms of those moves last year? Yeah, I, I like Ball and I, and I like Foot. I probably... You know, I think, you know, 
some of those guys you mentioned, there's different calibers there. I would say ball and foot probably are, are towards the top of the calibers there. In terms, in terms of those guys you mentioned, foot, I think, has multiple dimensions. He's not just a goal scorer. I think he's got he has size and he's got skill, and I think he's got pretty good hockey sense. Um, you know, he probably, because of his foot speed, he won't be a play true play driver in the NHL, but there's a lot of elements there that I think could help him play top nine, possibly even a top six in the NHL. Um, you know, I think he's going to be a good player. He had a great year of the dub, but you thought he was really impressive with Hockey Canada um, and particularly at the World Juniors. Um, I think he's a good player. Kevin Ball has kind of grown on me uh, the last few years after Arizona made him a second-round pick. Um, he's been uh, one of the contributing members of one of the best teams in the CHL the last two seasons uh, in Ottawa. Um, I see a guy who doesn't have like a ton of offense, but I think the first pass is good enough given the size and mobility and the, and the physicality that you can see, you know, like kind of said, there's a specific, there's some specific things that he does at an extremely high level that I think will translate into the pro and particularly into the NHL um, that will make him a useful, possibly even a good NHL defenseman. Um, but he definitely will play the game a lot differently than the way someone like Ty Smith would play. Um, and I, I think you kind of look at that pipeline and you kind of probably say that there's still, you know, you probably need another defenseman or two in that mix. Like I think McCamadoulin is also a good player. So, but I mean, like I really think high, high end kind of caliber defenseman, but I think those three guys could plausibly be like, you know, league average or better defenseman. So Ty Smith ranks as the top defenseman in terms of the prospects for the devils. And why do you see that? I mean, Ty Smith, you know, of those like, kind of those three guys that I mentioned, like, like, you know, compared to him to Paul or compared to McCamadoulin, I mean, McCamadoulin has some offense because he's, and, and he has, he has some, some the size and the, and the, and decent mobility with Ty Smith, I think just, uh, he has some dynamic components to his game and just really skilled, incredibly, you know, not incredibly, but really intelligent puck mover. Uh, it's pretty, rather mobile, you know, really elusive player with his skill and his skating. Um, you know, that's just a guy I think you can envision being on an NHL power play, you know, not whether it's the first yeah. or the second. Um, we'll see when he gets to the big leagues. Um, but I, I just think there's just some kind of, there's just more special elements to his game that I would say with Ball and McCamadoulin, um, even though it, the reason why I probably would say he's like the, the top, top echelon is probably just because of the size factor. And, you know, and we'll see how he translates and, how well the defender he's going to be in the NHL and whether he can play at that pace um, given, given his size. Um, but generally I just think there's just some really interesting offensive elements to his game that will separate him and have him become, you know, a significant player in that lineup. You know, Jesper Bratt is a guy he's been around for so long in three seasons that I just kind of assume he's graduated out of these organizational rankings, but he's still in that age bracket as one of the youngest prospects that the Devils have. You have him ranked fourth in terms of how you stack those young talent. I'm wondering what you think his ceiling is and how much room he has to grow based on what you've seen in the pros already. Yeah, I mean, I think Jesper is a really talented player. So there's a really high skill level there. I mean, I think when he made that team when he was 19, it was obviously an extremely impressive accomplishment. You know, guys don't make the NHL at 19, usually unless they're top five, top 10 picks typically. Uh, and so it was a really, it was really impressive. And, and that's a guy that a lot of other teams talk about over the last few years and, you know, and kind of wondering, you know, comparing him to other picks and, 
you know, seeing why did he make that jump when he did, what can we learn from it kind of thing. You know, I, the hype got a really, I think, significant around him in the 19 year old season. And the numbers have been kind of, I think a little round, around the same level for those first few years he's in there. I think you could kind of look at a guy with his skill and his hockey sense and be like, maybe the hype got a little out of control there at the, at the start. And maybe he's getting a little bit underrated right now. Cause I do think he's a guy who projects as to be, you know, through his career as a quality top six, four, because of the skill and the hockey sense, you know, for his size, I probably wouldn't call him like a dynamic, dynamic skater, which is why I'm not sure he's really going to hit like the top echelons in terms of forwards. But I think that's a guy who you can see being a piece of the puzzle to how this team becomes good. He may not be the most important piece like, like Jack Hughes or Nico, he um, but he's, he's a, he's definitely an important part of that. Uh, one area that we haven't covered is certainly goaltending, which has really been interesting for the devils. I would say pretty much since Marty retired and left. So sure. Uh, right now, obviously, it looks like Mackenzie Blackwood has really taken the reins and run with it. So I have a couple questions about goaltending, and I'll start with when you were watching Mackenzie when he was playing with Barry or other places, did you see this potential in him? Uh, you saw flashes of it, I okay. think, through his OHL career and through his pro career from the American League into the NHL. He's had some peaks and valleys. Um, he's had some times where I think he's looked really impressive. You see like a really just significant athlete who can, who, who can be a kind of a show stealer. And then there were, there were times where he really struggled. Um, and, and now he kind of, you know, t- towards, you know, last season as there seemed to seem to be a positive moment. Um, I do like McKenzie. Um, I think he can be a quality NHL goalie. I don't think, you know, you look at the organization and say that, you know, he's a, there's a problem with McKenzie. I don't know if he's like some, you know, not if he's like a Vasilevsky type where he's like the super elite prospect where you're like, you know, okay, this is solved for the next 20 years kind of thing. Not 20 is an exaggeration, but. Um, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but I, I think, you know, there is room in the Devils organization. If you look at their depth chart for another significant goalie prospect or two, um, because for one, usually when you acquire them, you're talking about a four to five year timeline down the road where, you know, you don't know where McKenzie's going to be. And, and typically in the NHL right now, you need two good goalies. Yeah. Um, so I do, there, I think you can argue there is still work there to be done, but you know, I'm sure he'll try and come to next season and, and do the best he can to, to solidify the fact that he's the number one goal in the NHL. Well, you know, you talk about, um, looking a couple years down the road and this year in the draft, Tom Fitzgerald picked a second year eligible player in Nico Dawes as a yep. goaltender. And we were talking to him a few days ago and he really said, you know, we're excited about what potential Nico Dawes can bring to this organization, whether it's, you know, pushing McKenzie at some point a couple years down the road or just being someone at the AHL level who can push for a spot too. So who is Nico Dawes and why did he get passed over in the first, in his first year of eligibility? I, mean, I thought that first year in the OHL, I just, he, he the, the level was definitely a pretty significant jump for him and he, he just plain struggled. Um, and, I, and kind of going into that second year of eligibility, uh, his last year of eligibility of junior hockey, uh, and, you know, he was really impressive. He was, you know, one of the best players in the OHL last season. He made Team Canada uh, World Junior Team. He was the game one starter. He, quick, he probably lost the job in the middle of the tournament, but he started game one. He looked like a good, he was going to be their go-to guy there for the event. And 
you know, the size and the hockey sense are really what stand out to me about Nico. Um, he can make things look rather easy in, in terms of just how he, how he reads the game and in terms of, in terms of how he, how he anticipates the passing plays and um, squares up pucks rather, rather well. I think, you know, the reason why he was never really considered a top, top prospect, I wouldn't say like kind of like Blackwood, who was a much higher, who was a higher pick. I dare say like the athleticism was him. The athleticism uh, with him was ever like off the charts. I don't think he moves around the crease that well, which is why he was, a, I think he was, a, I think it was a third round pick, I believe, you know, practically speaking, that's where guys with those athletic toolkits go. You're kind of hoping, uh, you know, to get a backup goalie. I think that's real realistic. Obviously things could be better, could, you know, could be a little worse. I think practically speaking, you're hoping for number two, number three goalie who's, you know, those, those attributes that I mentioned before, the size and the, and the hockey sense allow him to translate to the program good enough to provide some depth in the organization. How difficult is it to scout goaltenders? I mean, sometimes when we talk with scouts in the NHL, I mean, they don't pop, you know, immediately like some forward prospects or defensive prospects. It takes time to kind of see ceilings. For you, when you're scouting goaltenders, I mean, what's a difficult aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely more variance in that regard. And I think you have to kind of incorporate that into your valuations. Um, but at the same time, I think when you're, when you're looking at any athlete in any sport, there are certain things that stand out. You know, I think in, in most sports, you're looking for athleticism, you're looking for intelligence and, and you're looking for, for work ethic and whether it's a skater goalie or pretty much an athlete in any other sport, those characteristics tend to stand out. You know, you look, so you know, you're looking for, when you're looking at a goal, you're looking at, you know, just overall, what are the athletic toolkits look like there, the size, the, the quickness, the, their ability to recover, um, how smart are they, how poised are they, um, you know, how well do they handle certain paces, certain levels, how consistent are they? Uh, those are all kind of things that you kind of identify and, you know, you're going to get a lot of things wrong because, you know, the track record of evaluating goalies is um, tough to, to say mildly, um, but, I think you kind of try your, you try your best and you got to to incorporate those risks the best you can when you're putting a list together. We've kind of gone over, we're going to transition to the draft in just a moment, but sticking with the organizational rankings, uh, I'm wondering if there is a dark horse lower down this list where you list, you know, players with NHL potential that you think has the right toolkit to maybe jump up a tier eventually but is, uh, you know, still in that maybe just potential range now, but they have the tools to be a little bit higher up if they could put it all together. Uh, I was really impressed with Tyce Thompson when I watched him last year. I mean, he was one of the top scorers in college hockey. Uh, Providence, you know, had, had some ups and downs, but, you know, his, him and, and Jack Dugan, you know, were, were clearly at the top of that level. When, when I watched them last season, um, he, he was – he, he went as a second year eligible and he didn't go high because of his average skating. Um, but I think you look at the guy with his skill, uh, his size, his goal scoring ability. And I think that is a toolkit that, that looked like a pro maybe because of the skating, he doesn't get to play high in the lineup, but, but there is enough components there that look NHL caliber that you can envision him becoming a useful if not a good player if some things go right in his development and then and if you're a team and a franchise if you can hit on a couple of those guys and you can get them to become you know complementary or role players on your team it just makes the organization that much stronger all right i do want to transition to the 2020 nhl draft because it's just been a great summer for devils fans reading your work because you have an a minus draft grade for the devils which 
this was a, a very big draft for them. You know, they count, come in with nine picks, they make eight of them, and they have three first-round picks. They have to hit on these guys. They take Alexander Holtz at seven. I know you like him as a player. Can you talk a little bit about his ceiling and why you like him as a prospect? Yeah, sure. I mean, Alex has been a guy that kind of um, what I said at the beginning, they're like, he was one of those guys that inserted himself into onto the radar at an extremely young age. Like this is a guy you were hearing about when he was like 13, 14, 15 years old coming up through Sweden. Uh, like one of, one of those like potential, like elite guys can't miss guys. Um, and sometimes those guys don't always go wire to wire. Sometimes they, they get the hype and then they kind of fizzle out when they're 16, 17, 18, as the guys around them get older and bigger and stronger and, and they don't. Uh, but yeah, he did. He kind of went to the end there as a true high end guy. And he went, you know, with a rather high pick. Uh, I think with Alex, the two things that have always stood out to me are his elite skill and his elite shot. Uh, this, I mean, he is going to be known as the goal scorer, the guy who can finish from range and, and all that is true. And he does that at a really high level. But for me, he has like elite, elite hands. Uh, he can beat, I think, you know, he projects to be the kind of guy that can beat a lot of NHL defenders with his one-on-one play. Um, and kind of be able to create offense uh, with his skill uh, very consistently. Um, I think he brings both that elite skill and that elite shot, and he competes fairly hard. I think he's a really intelligent player. He can make passes. And I think that's why, you know, you kind of can envision him as a first power play type who can play either the the bumper or the flank because of the shot and because he can find seams in the offensive zone. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan. I think what he's shown at various levels, you know, what he's shown versus men, like last year, where at 17 years old, he looked like a top nine forward in the SHL and he scored at a rather significant rate. What he showed the year before, where playing, you know, at the U18 international level you know, versus players that were, you know, were a year older than him, he was one of the best players with consistency. Uh, he had one of the best U18 worlds I can remember from a guy who was an underage. Uh, you know, that, that's, you know, those are significant indicators uh, that tend to point to a guy who's going to be, I think, a really good NHL player, a guy I think could be a first-line forward in the NHL. If there was a drawback, it would be his, I think, slightly above average foot speed. It's not bad. It's just not the, the main thing I point to as to why you should be excited about this player and what may cause some transition issues when he gets to the NHL. I think he just has so many plus components that I think he is going to be a great player, you know, whether it's next year or the year after three years, I think he's going to get there. It's funny because when we talk about the draft, obviously the Devils had these first, uh, or sorry, these three first round picks and you hear about Alexander Holt so much just because he was the number seven. And then you hear about Mukamadulin just because it was a name that was on nobody's radar um, in terms of maybe he was on yours, but you know, I know our fan base, that one kind of threw people off. So I feel that maybe Dawson Mercer isn't getting as much attention as to who he is and how he plays. So can you sort of enlighten us? I mean, we've had a chance to talk to him, but who Dawson Mercer is, what type of player he is, and just your overall impressions of where he went in the draft. Yeah, Dawson's, I think, uh, continued to, to improve his stock over the last couple of years. I think going to about two or so years ago, you probably wouldn't have heard him mentioned as a first-round pick. Then as uh, the, the junior season in 2019 uh, developed, 
And as Drummondville was one of the best teams in the queue, and he was a significant reason why he was one, they were one of the best teams in the queue. His name really started to generate traction as, hey, you know, who was this underage kid who's putting up a point a game and being part of one of like the top teams in the league right now. And that carried over into this past season. Um, it carried over to when he made Canada's World Junior Team as a first-year draft eligible, which is a, typically a really significant accomplishment. Not, you know, those are that's typically where top five, top ten guys tend yeah. to make those kind of teams. That Canada's U twenty team that is, um, and you just watched him in the queue, and whether it was last season or even into the early parts of this season, you saw a guy with high high end skill, high end playmaking ability. Guy who just wins a ton of one-on-one battles. Guy who could score goals. Uh, he has size. There's a lot of dimensions there that I think are, are really appealing. Uh, I think the reason why he got to 17 is because of the average skating ability. Uh, there were, you know, that scared off some teams, but I think there was others who said, you know, that area is not great, but he has all these other extremely appealing dimensions to his game with the, like I said, the skill, the hockey sense, the goal scoring ability, the competitiveness, uh, the size, the ability to play, be a project as a legitimate two-way center in the NHL. Um, and, and now, you know, I think he's a really strong prospect. Someone I think is going to be a, could be a, you know, an above average forward in the NHL. Um, and it creates an interesting scenario because I don't really view, you know, there's some guys, you know, you draft them and you think, yeah, they're like a, you know, they're a fine two, great three. I don't really view Dawson Mercer that way. I think he's a guy you want in your top six somewhere. And if he's on your third line, you you better have a really, really good top six. Um, so I, you know, with with Jack and Nico and now him, I will be interested to kind of kind of see how that that all plays out. You know, I could be Rob, maybe he is a third line forward, but um I, I tend to think he could play higher in the lineup. You talked about. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. No, I was just going to say, I mean, we talked about Nico Dawes, and you talked about the three first-round picks. Now, I, I, guys outside of that, later in the draft, is there a name that you really liked that the Devils selected? A guy that's got some of those tools that you think can make them a successful NHL player? Off the top of my head, I believe those picks were Pitlick, Edward Schlaney, and Baumgartner. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the it. one, the one that would have been the most interesting would have been Pitlick, which is the kind of the lazy answer. I think he was like the one that was directly yeah. the first of them. Yeah, yeah. Them all. <laughs> okay, though. Uh, but no, but I, and he's interesting because I think if you would have done the draft uh, a year ago, which I think that would have liked to have that a year ago. But anyways, you know, <laughs> if you, you, yeah. you would have done the draft a year ago. Um, Pitlick's probably going in the top two rounds. Like he came up as one of the best players in in in, in the in that age group. Um, he was really impressive. I thought in his in his pre-draft season, uh, he even made, I think he even played a few games with the Czech like a World Junior team in like exhibition play. Um, he looks at a guy. He had some size. He had some skill. He can score goals. Uh, skating was just okay, but he seemed like a really appealing player. And then while he was productive in this, in the OHL this past season, he was roughly on a point of game, just overall watching him. He didn't seem to have the same kind of buzz to his name as he did the year before. I didn't think the skill popped at the same high on level as world juniors, which just went just okay. Um, and, and thus he ended up going in, in the fourth round. Um, and it's possible that maybe, you know, the, the, the maybe the people's got had themselves in the, in the pre-draft season. Maybe he, Maybe he just wasn't as skilled as, uh, sorry, as, as I thought he was like a year ago. But that is also a guy I look at and think, 
if there was a guy in their mid to late round picks that I think could play, I think it would be Pitlick because there is some skill. He has size, he competes, and there is enough of a track record there of him performing at a high level at various levels over several, over several years that I think, particularly if he gets a little quicker, that he could find a way to make it work. You talked about like if the draft was a year ago or all that, you know, obviously it was supposed to happen in June and it happens in October. So I'm wondering how much, if at all, did your draft rankings change between when the draft was initially supposed to be held versus uh, coming up in October and those extra months where guys are, you know, getting bigger, they're getting stronger. And some of them were even able to play a couple of games. Yeah. I, I think there was definitely a balance of that because you, you weren't just watching guys for a couple of months. You've been watching these guys for years, yeah. theoretically. So you're, you're trying not to make sure that a, a week or even a couple of weeks is impacting yeah. things too much. There were some significant events, like when teams had World Junior Camps, Russia, Finland, Sweden, Germany. You know, those were significant evaluation events that you could use. Um, Sweden and Finland were tougher. Uh, Finland before the draft only got a couple of games in their Liga, and Sweden got about a weekend and a bit. And Russia was a different story. Russia, the KHL started had almost a month of games in by the time the draft happened, and their schedule is rather condensed. They play a couple of games a week, so a guy like Shakir McAmadul and had about whatever it was like 20 percent of his schedule already played by the time the draft happened, and that was a really significant sample size. That was one where you could say, okay, is this just noise or is there something going on here? And for a guy like and who whatever he had like six or seven points by the time the draft happened, um, rather unusual for an 18-year-old defenseman to score at that rate, even though his ice time was, you know, you know, ice time was a little bit up because his team's having some COVID issues. Um, it was that one definitely played an effect. And the guy who went right after him, Igor Chinikov to Columbus, the, the delayed seat, the delayed draft definitely played an effect. The Russians, I think, are where we saw that play come into effect the most. Were you surprised at where Mukhamadulin went? I mean, um, I know it shocked a lot of people. So. Uh, like I said, that, that he wasn't in the first round of, of, of the mock that I did, but I think I had him like in, when I did a seven round mock, I think I had him like high in the second round. You know, that was a guy you kind of expected to kind of go right. 30 or 30 or 40. So if he went around 20, it wasn't like, out of left, yeah. left field. Um, and I think unlike a guy like Chinnikov, like I mentioned before, where I think, you know, I wasn't shocked by Bukamadulin because like this is a guy who has really just played up his age level for years. You know, this is a guy who played with the 18s a year in advance. He played with the U20s two years in advance for the, at the international level. Um, you know, those guys typically go high in the draft because there's something in, there's something different about their toolkit that allows them to do that. Uh, he played against men all season. Uh, you know, there were some concerns on the offense. Um, you know, there was a guy, you saw the size, you saw that he was reasonably mobile, not like incredibly fast, but reasonably mobile for a guy that size. Uh, watching him the last couple of years, there was always a question on the, on the offense. Now you're kind of watching him this year and see, oh, there's offense coming. You know, I was been following him for a few weeks. So when I saw them make the pick, I saw how they could connect those dots and um, and really, you know, you know, see what was what was there. And frankly, I was watching him this morning, and I thought, you know, I I thought he looked he was impressive. And you know, I think that one was, I wouldn't say that one was out of left field. I you know whether or not that would have been my pick or some other player we we could debate, but he was yeah. definitely right there in the mix. And I given the size, the skating, and 
enough two-way ability, you could definitely make a very reasonable argument that he could be a top four defenseman. You know, this was, you know, Tom Fitzgerald's first draft. Sometimes you can define draft classes. You know, they went for size, they went for speed, they went for value. How would you define Tom Fitzgerald's first draft at the helm here as GM of the Devils? Yeah, I... Oh, man, tough. I mean, <laughs> you know, tough questions are good. <laughs> I mean, you know, no, I mean, like, because I just, because, like, I think you can, like, look at those first two picks and be like, yeah, he just went for skill and, and hockey sense and gold, you know, you know, Mercer and Holtz have rhymes with that. They're both guys with great skill, great, great, great IQs who can score goals, but that's not really what McCamadoulin is. McCamadoulin was kind of the big athlete, um, the guy with who's, who has the size and skating and, uh, you know, he kind of has enough offense there to go with that. Do you think he's going to play Nico Dawes? Um, you know, you know, you know, a goalie with a different kind of athletic toolkit. Ethan Edwards, you know, small mobile skilled guy. Artem Schlaney, average size guy with skill and you know, really skilled average skater. Um, Benjamin Baumgartner is kind of like a smaller guy with, with, with good, pretty good offensive instincts who can score or slightly above average skater. Just not so-so for that size. I'm not really sure I see like a ton of trends there. Um, you know, we'll kind of see over the course of the next few years. I think it's kind of hard to say a trend from one draft. You kind of have to look at drafts as a whole and, you know, look, because it's only like seven, seven or eight data points. You don't really get enough to kind of make I think sweeping conclusions from that. So we'll see kind of how his first two, three, four years go in terms of r- r- running the helm. I think we would probably learn more from that. I hate just throwing names at you, but I'm having fun listening to your insight on these players. I've got one from a few years ago, obviously the devil's trade for Murray. And I'd like to know what you thought of him coming out in the draft. Obviously a lot has been talked about that draft class, but I also want yeah. to know, it was a bad draft class. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> I didn't want to say it right away, but yes. Uh, and I just want to know what you think of him as a player now. I mean, he's obviously battled through some injuries, but what do you like about him as still a young defenseman in this league? Yeah, I mean, he was highly projected because he was a, a tremendous skater with really high hockey sense. Um, the question going into his year was, like, what's, like, you know, for a number two pick, he wasn't, like, a really, like, you know, flashy player. He was like this slightly, you know, somewhat average size. I think he was closer to 6 you know, didn't put up big numbers, wasn't really like this elite skill type. And you kind of wondered like, is that really what you want to see in like a second overall? Like he, his skill set seems really similar to Jamie Drysdale, to be quite honest, who went sixth overall uh, this year. Um, in terms of the size skating IQ combination, but lack of like sexy, like skill and, and, and size dimensions. Um, and, and, you know, but he was also a guy who played up his age group, uh, for years, was one of the Canada's best U18 players for several years in a row, played the world champions, I believe in, in his, in his draft season. And it was thought of like, this is going to be a good player. I think there were reasonable questions at the time that ended up prevailing. Does this guy have enough offensive upside to be a star? And the answer ended up being no, but there is enough there with the skating and the brain, presuming that he stays healthy, which has been an issue for him, for him to be a quality player you know they obviously got him because of these because of the weird circumstances with the flat cap and teams trying to you know m- you know make things work in, in some of these uh, unique uh, restrictions um, but he's a good player you know I think he's a very useful NHL defenseman I don't know if he's going to be play the top of your lineup or be the top of the lineup with a good team but he's a good player so 
after well, this draft that we just have, Alexis Lafreniere just went wire to wire as the top pick. Um, is there a consensus right now on 2021 who kind of can hold that mark as the top pick? And will that person potentially go wire to wire as the number one ranked player? Um, I would say going into this year's draft, there is not a consensus one okay. like the last three years where you had Rasmus Dahlin, Jack Hughes, and Alexis Lafreniere pretty much kind of be the known quantities going into the year and being the number one picks when it was all said and done. The two guys that, that strike me as the guys with the best chance would be Michigan defenseman Owen Power and Finnish center Aturatu. Um, I would think if the majority of scouts I talk to think Power will be is, is the top prospect, but not all of them. Um, it will be interesting to see how those two seasons play out between their unique circumstances. Um, Michigan doesn't actually have a schedule yet. I was going to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we believe they will have a schedule and they will yeah. play games. We just don't know how many or when or how, or will be uninterrupted. Um, but yeah, I think those are the, are the two players that, that come to mind when it comes to the very top of next year's class. Well, I could tell you Devils fans listening to this podcast probably don't want to hear any more about the top end prospects next year. Well, we would like to, you know, you'd well, like to have the competitive roster. You could trade for them. <laughs> yeah, you could. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you could, you could, but us, you know, the page turns here rather quickly. Um, we don't have any definitive details on, on next year's schedule, but, you know, I would say from what I'm hearing, we're kind of hoping for some sort of summer draft. Um, for 21 and you know given we're recording this in October that's going to be here sooner rather than later all right well Corey we really appreciate you joining speak of the devils great insight uh really enjoy your work uh, I'm sure devils fans are gonna enjoy this podcast really appreciate you coming on yep sure thing thank you all right thank you Corey well man I really liked a lot of what he had to say great insight this is the guy that knows his prospect I mean he like he said he can't even count how many hockey games uh, he's watched he said this morning he's watched like five already and let's just you know let the people know it's when we were recording with him it was only two o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> okay it's not like a nine or ten p.m recording it's two o'clock in the afternoon and the guy has watched five games already i mean i mean when it's your job and it's your passion you got to go do it right i mean that's that's what you got to do i really liked what he had to say about alexander holtz and his potential, his ceiling, the fact that he's been on the radar for years, not just leading up to this year for the draft. Really liked what he had to say there. I liked what he had to say about Nolan Foote. We've heard a lot of positivity about Nolan Foote throughout this offseason for many people, including Craig Button and Chris Peters and now Corey Pronman, thinking that he could fit into that top six, top nine and be a really good player in the NHL. Uh, who are some of the other guys that stuck out to you, Amanda? Well, I mean, it's very easy to say, but Mukamadulin, you know, we've heard a lot about him because he seemed to come out of nowhere. But to get that insight from Corey that he wasn't, you know, that out of the blue, maybe just a name that others aren't more familiar with. And to know that he's taking on a bigger role uh, in his team in the KHL and how for years he stuck out to someone like Corey. Um throughout different tournaments so that's exciting to me it's I hope it's exciting to our fan base too just to be a little more familiar with a guy who you know there seems to be really high hopes for him absolutely you know Promen talked a lot about 
uh, growing the prospect pool of the New Jersey Devils. And the Devils are growing a lot of goodwill within the Newark community. And now we're going to bring in a reporter for NewJerseyDevils.com, Catherine Bogart, who is going to join us to talk about one of those initiatives that has been taking place this summer in the Newark community. Hey, Chris and Amanda, great to be here with another section of our community podcast. <laughs> Today, we are talking with Audible's founder and chairman, Don Katz. He is an incredible man who has a history of making some pretty incredible companies. And he joked with me that, you know, he always told his family Audible was one of his last business ventures that he would create as a startup. But then COVID hit and he wanted to make sure that he could give back to the newer community, which is a community that Audible has been a part of since the beginning. It's a community that the New Jersey Devils really are so proud to be a part of as well. So it was kind of an opportunity for him to really jump in and give back to some incredible people in the Newark community. So he started Newark Working Kitchens. It's a nonprofit based in Newark that partners with restaurants and with citizens in Newark to help not only the restaurants stay afloat during this time, but make sure that some of our friends and family in this area are also getting healthy, nutritious meals. So he'll explain all of it, how it started. But fun fact about Don, he's a huge hockey fan. So much so that we had to start the interview <laughs> discussing hockey. So you will hear about why he loves hockey so much. And he was an avid watcher of the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. He was very happy, as many of us, to see Blake Coleman win and to see Andy Green go as far as he did in the playoffs. So Don is an amazing guest for this podcast. I'm excited for you guys to hear about it. I'm excited too. I think it's going to be great. I mean, it's all, all the stuff that's been happening in Newark during this pause has been wonderful. I know the Devils are a huge part of that, and it's going to be fun to learn more about this uh, community service. I like it a lot. Welcome in to Speak of the Devils. Thank you so much for joining us today. Catherine, it's just a pleasure to be here, particularly with uh, one of my my favorite things, the devil. So uh, thanks for, for having me on. And before we jump in, we have to talk about your hockey connection because you <laughs> are a huge fan of hockey, huge fan of the Devils. Your company is based in Newark, so right around the corner from Prudential Center. What is more of your hockey ties, especially in New Jersey? Well, my hockey ties would take hours to go through because I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessed. But uh, I grew up in Chicago. I started playing when I was six. I uh, I was there during the Bobby Hull, and uh, you know I'm I'm that old. I was there during the great days of the Blackhawk Stanley Cup uh, reigns in the in the '60 with Bobby Hull and Stan Makita, and I would just uh, know the game inside and out, love the game. And when I uh, came to sh to Newark. I fell right into, uh, frankly, some of the glory days uh, that I'm sure will be reclaimed again for the Devils. But um, and being a defenseman, uh, there was nothing better than watching the the Devils, which because it's just uh, it was such an amazing built from the defense uh, team. So I'm, I'm my my kids grew up watching the Devils, and uh, you know we still we actually buy tickets for all our employees, and hopefully that comes back soon uh so if you work at audible you get to see devil's games as part of our relationship to the team and um it's just been great also to work with some of the executives that that work with you and pe people like Hugh Weber and uh and Scott O'Neill and um people like David Blitzer an owner who's a friend and so it's just been a, a great relationship well, hockey and you and Audible are all linked together, especially in a new project undertaken by Audible with Newark Working Kitchens, HBSC, primarily the Devil's parent company, donated to help out with this 
let's start with the basics. What is Newark Working Kitchens and when did it start? Right. Well, you know, Audible moved to Newark in 2007 and um, we came without any uh, incentives. Uh, We really came to try to see what a successful company could do to be part of the comeback of a of a great American city. And uh, and we really look for scalable models that could be transferred to other more challenged zip codes uh, and help help create, frankly, a quality where there, there isn't. It's that big an idea for us. And um, when the COVID hit, because we employ so many people from the neighborhoods and including our Audible scholars and interns who are New York born, you know, people who work with us, we were very aware of how aggressively this crisis was going to hit um, a city like Newark with concentrated living, often substandard housing and and other issues related to COVID. But one of the biggest things that came out quickly was was food deprivation and lack of access to food. And then there was the other part of it, uh, which is why Newark Working Kitchens has multifaceted power to it um, was that the small businesses were not going to be sustained when the downtown in particular emptied out as well as some of the some of the wards and, and the Prudential Center and other areas that supported local business. So the, the idea is pretty simple and, and straightforward is that we buy rest buy restaurant meals from uh, over 25 different uh, Newark restaurants at $10 a piece. And at least 150 or 200 are picked up in the morning. Um, and they, they're delivered in a targeted way to people who need food in Newark. There's 46 different locations. Um, there's vans that drive them around. There's to the federal housing projects. So actually, groups of homeless people who we work with the city very closely to identify. We work with the school system to get them food into the families where the kids were dependent on, on school lunch. Um, and it puts it puts hundreds of people back to work, and it sustains the restaurants. So if you kind of care about um, you know what happens to the city in general, it's become a really uh, powerful cause that um, we've we've raised over seven million dollars and and uh, and uh, delivered five hundred thousand meals at this point to uh, to people all over the city. And it's uh, it's beginning to really, um, you know, catch on as something that's a worthy cause that should go to other cities and other places where um, where, you know, the people where there's frankly have nots. I mean, this is this COVID crisis in general is going to hammer the lower income, 25 percent of people with more fragile businesses and small businesses for a long time to come. So it's a. It's a very specific response. We're really excited to be working with the Devils and um, and other companies in the city and other uh, other um, individual entities are are, are supporting it. Um, and but we've got more money to raise from here because we're not going back to work. As we're not going back to uh, the Rock in in the foreseeable future. And uh, until there's enough safety to do that, uh, we have to sustain these restaurants. Definitely. What was the timeline to set this up from creation of idea to set this up and have it fully functioning and donating foods and using these restaurants? It's funny. One of my kind of pledges to the people in my family was that wouldn't be more startups in my life after lots and lots of startups and startup experiences over my my career in 2020. But little did I know COVID 
was going to hit and create a, such a crisis. But it's only been about 25 weeks um, from the idea to this becoming a, you know, an elaborated program that's uh, that's actually helping people. And it and it it's really worthy of your of your listeners to try to go to NewarkWorkingKitchens.com. It's one word and look at some of the clips of how amazingly uh, emotional it is for these restaurateurs, not just to be able to put their people back to work and stay alive, but um, to be considered themselves frontline workers. I mean, they fit sick and they really are part of serving others at a time of crisis. So it, it really is a, um, it's worth, worth seeing because the restaurateurs are just uh, you know, they're just amazing and also incredibly diverse because it's newer, different, and lots of people with different kinds of cuisine stepping up to uh, provide these nutritious meals uh, for people that they need every day. Outside of the number of meals that have been served and the analytical impact, what impact have you seen in the newer community from this program so far? Well, I just think it's uh, it's 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 galvanized a lot of. Um, support across all the different diverse constituencies and, and uh, you know, to be able to work so closely with, with the public schools, with City Hall, with the different agencies um, has really been, um, you know, been powerful. And, you know, it's, a, it's again, and, and what's also been, been pretty great is to see how many people from other cities are looking at it, you know, as a model. Because the truth is, if these restaurants go down and everybody goes on assistance um they might not be come back for for quite a while and uh and that you know that could mean something close to a depression for cities like newark and other cities that are not um frankly as 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 a uh, as well off um as newark newark is you know has an amazing comeback trail we're very proud of another thing we started called newark venture partners which has taken on a whole life of its own um attracting you know, thousands of, of tech companies that wanted to come and grow in Newark and the, the ones that were chosen are amazing companies. They're all like ready to plant in Newark, take leases and grow hundreds of jobs and, and millions of dollars of revenue that can be taxable and help the city. Um, but all of this need, means that we have to sustain the city as best we can through this moment of, of crisis. And, uh, and uh, there's just, just really deep need. Audible is a company that does give back. For our listeners that aren't as familiar with the history of giving back, especially to the newer community, why is this so important to the core values of Audible to be assisting the community, especially in times like COVID? Well, we we um, we decided at various points as we became a successful and a large scaled company. We have people all over the world working for Audible, twenty four different global centers, and eighteen are in in cities and. Uh, and we we just decided that um, if a company can be successful, you probably should ask yourself how you can use that success to create scalable models, the kinds of models that make businesses successful. Because you know, measuring inputs and outputs—that's what why businesses work, and they use capitalism um, usually for the better versus the worse uh, to to do it. And we just realized why not address urban inequality, one of the things that, you know, we we were focused on for a long time. And frankly, society is much more focused right now on the, the basics of inequality across the um, across the landscape. And frankly, I I watching the the hockey community 
embrace the, the racial inequality in, in particular, let alone in Newark, but things like medical access inequality and, and huge economic inequality, which is just, uh, you know, it is, it is structural. Um, it was just, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see that happen in the, in the hockey community and, uh, and actually, you know, wrote lots of my people I play, so play hockey with and saying that, look, look at this, this is, this is, uh, a real turning point. I thought the opening ceremonies at the beginning after the round robin, um, you know, were, were just incredibly moving. Uh, so I think people are waking up, but we just decided why not have a corporation that has values that actually address inequality as we can and um, not, frankly, just uh, give money to charities and show up at balls and things like that because, um, you know, companies did invent a lot of the things that became strong government programs and the people who started companies often invented the things that became scalable public goods. The public library system was an individual. The Smithsonian was developed by an individual, all of them quite successful at business. Um, so this tradition of simply having a couple people, you know, who are supposed to give charity away and, um, you know, and support generally the nonprofit sector, we just decided to say, what could we do that was a little deeper? And I think a lot of people want to work at Audible, partly because of how we decided to roll. It's a big deal to be a role model in the community. And Don, how can those who are listening now, who have seen Audible's efforts, who have seen the devil's efforts, get involved in supporting Newark Working Kitchens? I just could hope that, as I said before, go to newarkworkingkitchens.com. It's one word. And you'll see the story of this particular, um, you know, really fantastic adventure. And it'd be great if anyone wanted to feel a part of it from corporate leadership to, uh, you know, people with financial wherewithal that you can make, make a donation. And you'll literally know that every dollar goes to a meal and that meal creates, creates jobs and that the, the people will, who get it are really people who need food right now because there is a massive disparity to access to of food between people who either lost their jobs or, or in some ways have disabilities and other reasons that they are really stuck in environments where they're, they're not getting nutrition. Newarkworkingkitchens.com. Thank you so much, Don, for sharing how this amazing program started and how we can be involved. And we appreciate the hard work that you have for the Newark community. Wow, that Catherine, that was super cool. Thank you for bringing us the interview. Uh, it's just fantastic to see the work that's going on. And I know for a fact that HBSC is really excited to be a part of this program. So Catherine, how can those listening get involved? Because I know that there's going to be people that want to be a part of this. I know Don said it a couple of times, but I want to plug the website one more time, newarkworkingkitchens.com. So Newark workingkitchens.com. There you can find some of the stories of the people who have been impacted. You can see how you can donate. You can see how you can get involved. Over 500,000 meals have been delivered by 24 restaurants in the Newark area so far. So it is something that you want to give back to. And I know as we head into the giving season, as we head into Giving Tuesday and all the amazing goodwill that we have around the end of the year, this is definitely some organization's one of the organizations that you should consider giving back to since they do help us out so much. And I know HBSC is so honored to be partnered with them. Half a million meals, Amanda, Catherine, that is impressive. That That's is awesome. exciting. That is great that HBSC is a part of that. Well, thank you very much for bringing that, Catherine. 
That'll do it for this episode of Speak of the Devils. Thank you, Catherine, for the community segment with Newark Working Kitchens. And of course, to our guest, Corey Promen for Amanda Steiner and Catherine Bogart. I'm Chris Westcott. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Speak of the Devils, visit NewJerseyDevils.com slash podcast.